fair Venus shines even in the eve of day. With sweetest beam, propitious shines and shakes a trembling flood of softened radiance from her dewy locks. Den interplanetære podcasten. Utforskning av rom til fordel for hele menneskeheten. Dine vakter i England og Norge. Med Tjurøsel og Chris Garni. Oh yeah, baby. I think it's pronounced. Anna Letitia Babble. Babble? Babble. Babble. I think she probably had a kind of, you know, it was that time where the English and the French were almost indistinguishable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow, you know, that sort of, well, they're sort of upper classes. Yeah. Intermingling. In the 18th century, every everyone loved each other and got on and there was no wars there was no 18th century was, yeah no wars apparently in the whole of the whole thing no particularly in europe it's a good time for everyone i thought we'd start with something beautiful about venus because venus deserves to be treated with utter reverence doesn't it absolutely as a as, as a planet don't you think i think so it's stunningly beautiful even though it's hellish hell on earth <laughs> um before we start start talking about uh, venus i want to shout out to four patrons, mm-hmm. the greatest of the patrons. That's the two Justins, as always, Justin, Justin Young and Justin Roberts, and uh, Drew Wright and Sigmund Sjoed. Thank you very mm. much, patrons. Well, it's, it is hard to um, put a price on that because they, they keep this going, particularly during lockdown. Mm. These guys have kept kept the whole thing on an even keel and wiped its nose and kept it going. So I cannot thank you enough. And actually, all listeners should thank these guys because they're the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's quite an international crew there as well. I'm also going to thank Tupper Hyde, who's another patron who hooked me up with the interview this week. Nice. And it's a really timely interview as well. It's a guy called Mike Sakarak. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. It's quite difficult. Seems um, close enough. He's the deputy project systems engineer of Lucy, but he's also the lead uh, the lead engineer of this latest mission to Venus, ah. Da Vinci Plus, or Da Vinci Plus. Da Vinci. Da Vinci. You say? <laughs> da Vinci. Don't touch da Vinci the Vinci Plus. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of Da Vinci, Venus rhymes with, and and. Despite that, it's um, it, it's we often associate it with the feminine, don't we? Yes, Venus. we do. It's yes, even do. named named after the uh, Roman goddess of of beauty. I always thought it was goddess of love, but the goddess of beauty no, is more beauty, apt. beauty. Hmm. Yeah, but oh, goddess of Venus. Uh, beauty. Oh, Venus. Uh, so yeah, and uh, it's often referred to as the Russian planet, mm. particularly by the Russians, who so, I think, and I can understand why because. I'm going to what I'm going to do before we get to the interview Chris is have a little rundown of all the time that we've been to Venus. Yeah. Okay. That's well, the, good to the, me. Well, the the significant times we've been to Venus because there's quite a lot of flybys and gravity assists. Yeah. Cuz even Beppe Colombo had a little swing by quite recently. Oh, Beppe. Um but and and did a little bit of measurements in the of the atmosphere and things just so we learn a little bit more. Yeah. And obviously Venus has been in the news because of phosphine and stuff like that. But um, it's actually really interesting, the missions that have gone. So get this, in the 1960s, there were 18 missions to Venus. 
like you, you'll actually see how Venus changes in priority. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because there was 18 in the 60s. There was 11 in the 70s, eight in the 80s, one in the 90s, and that was just a flyby by Cassini. Yeah. There was two in the 2000s, five in the 2010s, Ooh, but that's bump. because... Yeah, it was a bit of a bump, but that's mainly Japanese entering into the Venus market, I as see. it were. And there's only been one or two, actually, if we include the Bepi Colombo, uh, uh, flybys in the 2020s so far. Well, so far, it's kind of early. But you can see there's a bit of a sort of downward trend yes, definitely. Of, of visits to Venus, particularly landing on the surface or going through the atmosphere. I mean, it, it, it's... It's it's pretty bonkers. I guess everyone's facing the other way. Everyone is facing the other way. It's it's like Mars has drawn our attention. But why is that? I don't know. It's just it's just better. <laughs> Mars is better than Venus. <laughs> no, I think it's it's oh. obviously it's obviously the uh, the distinct possibility of habitability. You know, but you know, it's mm. not like Mars is a very friendly place to live. But no. it's obviously, you know, you've got the chance more to try and colonize, more to try and build bases. Whereas if you tried to build a base on Venus, it'd probably melt. <laughs> yeah, more than probably. But, uh, you know, we've, we've had this before where you could, you could potentially build cities floating in the sky. Because mm. 30 miles up, it is similar pressure and temperature to Earth. And similar gravity, of course. Mm. So, you know, that, that would be all right. And, of course, life may have retreated there. Because what's amazing is only 715 million years ago, there may have been oceans on Venus. Wow. And that's only 715 million years ago. So, yeah, that is, that is amazing. I didn't actually know. You know, there, there may have been plenty of time for life to have started on Venus, in which case, like, life being in the atmosphere might be a distinct possibility if, if, there, if life was abundant at one point and, and you know how life likes to cling on. Hmm. Not cling on as in Star Trek. Not the aliens, Klingons. But, but, not the Klingons, but, but you know how life likes to cling on. Mariner 2 is the first real successful um, mission to Venus, it's, and that's the Americans, 14th of December, 1962. Uh, the Russians had, and the Russians and the Americans had tried lots of times, but they'd all sort of blown up on the launch pad, it seems, or or just lost in space. Yeah. But Mariner Two is the first probe that had a planetary encounter, so it's the first you know space probe that's gone into space and been by a planet. So it's a flyby, but still pretty impressive. Yeah. But it's at this point the the Russians just totally start kicking ass. So Venera. So guess what Venera means in Russian? Oh, I don't know. It sounds a bit too close to venereal, but... but well, maybe venereal actually has the same uh, root, actually. Oh, because of v Venus. Venera obviously means ven <laughs> Venus. Yeah. Venus. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah cool. So, so Venus 4, the Russian Venera 4, actually returned atmospheric data 18th of October 1967, right? And it, So it was the first spacecraft to sort of float down through the atmosphere yeah as we'll hear in the um interview it's not like something falling through earth's atmosphere you know this big heavy ball falling through earth's atmosphere it's more like throwing a pebble into the sea and and the way that a stone might move through water because mm. the atmosphere is so thick yeah it's interesting isn't it 
So it takes almost an hour to get to the surface if you're falling through. Because it's more like sinking through an ocean. That's amazing. Uh, and the same with Venera 5 and 6. Uh, they they drop down into the atmosphere. So there's these like kind of um, probes that sort of fall down into the in, into the atmosphere. There was a few before, obviously, Venera 4, and they all blew up on the launch pad. But yeah. um, that's the kind of, you know, hard end of... of you know, this, we're still in the 60s here. Yeah. So this is while the space race is going on. Uh, Russia are definitely winning the space race Yeah. when it comes to how good they are at going to Venus. You know, the, they are the best, right? Mm. So Venera 7, it's, it, it had this re, that it's got this actually amazing parachute design yeah. where the parachute opens up a bit and then there's this reefing line that keeps the parachute not fully open and that slowly melts. And as it melts, it, it it allows the parachute to open more and more as it drifts down to the surface. I which mean, is a the pretty cool fact mechanism. that they knew that it could do that in 1970 is just astonishing. Yeah. That is absolutely amazing, isn't it? It landed a bit hard because that parachute actually uh, failed eventually. So it hit the surface at 37 miles an hour. Now, obviously, it'd be going a lot faster on Earth because yeah. it wouldn't be slowed down by this thick atmosphere. So that that goes to show, you know, just how thick the atmosphere is that like a giant metal ball is still only going 37 miles an hour when it hits the surface. Yeah. From that rapid halt in its trajectory, they were able to get the data back from that and and conclude that there's a very hard surface, that Venus wasn't dusty. It was just like it had been paved or something like that, right? So it's it's like, oh, my God. So, the, the, like, Venus is a very, very hard, totally dustless surface. And so the, so in, I, they may have, I suppose, lucked out a little bit there, but, but it also found things like the surface was about 475 degrees centigrade. That's a little bit, huh? Which is, well, yeah, which is, like, twice as hot as my oven goes to. Yeah, yeah, and you don't want to go <laughs> in your just oven. like... So I definitely don't want to go in my oven because that like cooks pizzas in exactly. ten minutes, doesn't it? But you get a pizza yes. done like that in, in on Venus, pizza's ready quick. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. In fact, Venus is probably ace for for cooking pizza because of that hard surface as well. Yeah, completely. Yeah, you like know, you don't stone. get a soggy bottom. You won't get soggy bottoms, and that's <laughs> n- nobody wants that. No. And it, and but it also found that it was uh, one thousand three hundred psi down on the surface as well, which is which is about the same pressure that you get um, half a mile deep in the ocean. Wow! So so that's a, a very crushing atmospheric pressure as I well. I put about one hundred and ten in my bike tires. I don't go up to one hundred and ten. You're a crazy man. I'm a lunatic, aren't I? Just what am I doing to myself? <laughs> Saddle sore. That's um, what I'm doing to myself. <laughs> yeah, that that is saddle sore time. <laughs> but yeah, the, but the but the because it hit so hard, it rolled over, and the medium uh, gain antenna wasn't quite pointing at Earth properly. And they actually thought they didn't get any information at all. But someone actually, this bloke Oleg Rijiga, double checked the data and found that the tapes weren't completely empty that hmm. the, the, the the tape recordings of the signal actually had this tiny signal and they were able to get all this information from it so venera 7 even though it was a slight failure because of this parachute issue really is the first soft landing on another planet and venera 8 
1972 pretty much repeated the the trick worked for 50 minutes on its descent yeah and uh showed that the clouds like the thick clouds ended quite high up and after that it was relatively clear just like it is on earth you know they, they were able to tell loads of things about the actual rock as well from venera eight venera nine so the russians are killing it with their veneras first image from the surface of any planet i have to have a little look at that oh it's 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 quite good because it it does look like it's landed in a car park <laughs> It really, it it really does. It looks like, it looks like a car park that they're just pneumatic drilling to get up. So like it's it's like all broken up. Yeah, it looks see. like a broken up car park basically. It does, yeah, like, yeah, brilliant. Which I guess for a planetary surface is still quite smooth. It's not like trying to land on the moon or Mars where it's quite rubbly. Yeah, and it's got a similar. You know, they they're able to tell that it's sort of similar lux. 14,000 lux that the earth gets in in um, daylight if it's not direct sunshine but it's really cool how they how it protects itself as it falls through because it's using its shape almost to slow itself down and so you don't need the parachutes all the way down and then when it hits the ground you had this um uh like disc that crushed itself as it hit the ground and act like a sort of donut shaped cushion yeah. and sort of crushed down when it hit the ground. So you could hit hit it quite hard. Um, but that uh, you don't get a 360 panorama with it because one of the lens caps failed to come off, which exactly three days later, Venera 10 did exactly the same thing. Pretty much identical mission, but three days later. And the lens cap again didn't come off. So they've oh, got two 180 panoramas that look very similar. Uh, You'd think is... like maybe the other lens cap wouldn't come off, so they'd have a full panorama. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's pretty annoying. Uh, so um, yeah, so the Americans now are catching up. So in in early December 1978, so Russians at this point in the 60s and early 70s, they've they've absolutely killed it yeah, with Venus completely. But Pioneer Venus, so there's these Pioneer missions called Pioneer Venus One and Pio- Pioneer Venus Two. Venus 1 is an orbiter and Venus t- uh, Venus 2 is an atmospheric uh, craft and they both arrive early December 1978 and uh Pioneer Venus 2 is four probes one big one and three small ones and they all went into the atmosphere there's no cameras and they didn't they weren't designed to survive landing uh, but they showed the uh, similar sort of data to the Russian stuff that the temperatures were between 448 degrees centigrade and 459 centigrade, that the ground pressure was between 80, 86 and 94 bar. So like in, in, like ridiculous. Uh, but it also showed that uh, there was this weird argon isotope ratio, which is re- completely different to Earth. So they think that the, that the way that the venusian atmosphere was made was completely different to how earth's atmosphere is made right so 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 it's like that is you know a pretty major scientific discovery and the the orbiter stayed right up until the early 90s it was still in operation and a few days later venera 11 and 12 at christmas time 1978 um weren't quite as successful as the previous ones and they failed to get any pictures back. So the, the cameras failed, but they did also report this argon uh, ratio and discovered carbon monoxide at low al- altitudes. Right. Not a friendly so, place to be as we've covered. 
<laughs> no. So it's like being boiling hot, crushing, and like putting your mouth over the exhaust pipe of your car. <laughs> it's all right, isn't it? Let's let's go on holiday. So maybe I can see why people prefer uh, Mars. Venera 13, first recording of sound from another planet, 1982. Fantastic. Amazing. Also managed a colour panorama. But my favourite little anecdote of this is there's a guy called Leonid Kasafamalanti or Kasanfomaliti. Kasanfomaliti. Doesn't sound Russian, does it? No, it sounds like Italian. Yeah, it does sound Italian, doesn't it? But he was part of the Venera team. But he wrote a paper about uh, how the picture shows this object that moves. It's like, see this object moving? It's like a scorpion. Yeah. And he was convinced that there that the photos showed that there was life on the surface of Venus, you know, these scorpions on the surface of Venus. But it turns out it's back to those lens caps again. It was the two lens caps that were on the floor that he thought was the same lens cap, but they're actually two different objects. So it wasn't something moving. Uh... It was just... The two lens caps. They look exactly apparently. the same. They're in a different place. <laughs> I could see how he would yeah. think that. And lens caps yeah. do look a lot like scorpions. Mm. <laughs> uh, uh, Venera 14, again, was one of these. I know, it's ridiculous. Venera 14 was uh, uh, was one of those things that uh, uh, was one of the probes that landed a few days later, so a little bit after Christmas, and also did exactly the same thing, took a colour panorama, this time 360, just like Venera 13. And there's if you go into... Don P. Mitchell's website, he's got reprocessed um, colour images of those pictures that they take. Cool. Um, he's managed to find a way of actually getting more detail out of them. So, you know, those still remain the greatest pictures of the surface of Venus that you can get, the Venera 13, Venera 14. Venera 15 and 16 were just orbiters, right. although Venera, I believe, 15 was the first high-resolution radar mapping of venus so venera basically kicked ass didn't it completely yeah absolutely nailed it and it's not over there it's not even over there (laughs) so the russians then set up this thing called vega now i thought vega would have just been named after the star but it turns out that it's um one of those things where what do you call it when you push two words together you could you could call a compound or a portmanteau yeah you know like when you chillax i hate i hate chillax why don't you just chillax about it, though? Oh, God. Don't. Don't do it to me. Don't start saying game changer as well. Game changers is my head in. Well, this was a game changer. <laughs> <laughs> so Vega is actually, yeah, is Venus and Halley's Comet combined. So in, in, uh, I think Halley's Comet in Russian is Galea. And if you combine Venus and Galea, Vega, it's Vega. Ah. So Vega, that's what it's named after. And I've never, I never knew that. So the mothership that, that was taking these two Venus probes um, then used a gravity assist of Venus to intercept Halley's Comet. Nice. So it's like a double mission, Venus and Halley's Comet for the price of one. Fantastic. The probes themselves didn't take images because they landed on the night side of Venus. So there's you know, obviously no light. But... The cool thing here is that they had a balloon on board. A balloon? In both Vega 1 and Vega 2, because, again, the Russians seem to like sending these things in pairs, one arriving three days after the other. In both, balloon is sort of pulled out by a parachute at about 61 kilometres altitude. 
then the par another parachute then pulls this filled balloon out, then the balloon inflates, then the parachute and the inflation system are jettisoned off, and then uh, this ballast is also uh, jettisoned off at roughly 50 kilometres, and then the balloon floats back up to a stable height of about 53 or 54 kilometres. Fantastic. And then just starts making its way around the entire planet at this stable height. Huh. Uh, so yeah, amazing. so at that point, yeah, it's it's only 535 millibars of pressure. Temperature's about 300 Kelvin. And 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 so these balloons were allowed to just sort of drift around the planet and, and sort of manage about 30% of the circumference of the planet, taking measurements. Whew. 1985 era is the last time that we really sent anything into the atmosphere of Venus. You know everything, don't we now? Just know we've got more to learn. <laughs> we definitely don't know everything. As we'll, get to the, as, we'll, as we'll get to the interview, which is really exciting because Da Vinci Plus is another one of these, of these probes that sort of drifts through the atmosphere like a pebble in yeah. the sea. But I won't want to spoil it to you. I'll get the lead engineer to, to, to kind of explain that one. But sure. Magellan is obviously a big uh, American one at this point. So 1989, Magellan... They, they launched that from Atlantis. So it's the first interplanetary probe to be launched from the space shuttle. Incredible. Actually, you know, you know flung it out the, out, out the cargo bay of the space shuttle. Makes its way to Venus for 10th of October 1990. And, uh, and then it mapped the surface and gravitational field for about uh, four years while it was in orbit there. So incredibly important. And then it, would, and then it was programmed to burn up in the Ve uh, Venusian atmosphere. Uh, then 2006 is uh, Venus Express. So uh, it's only like, the you know, 2006 that the European Space Agency send a, a, a probe to Venus. Isn't that surprising? A little bit behind there, guys. A little bit behind, but, you know. Yeah. And it's and it's even launched on a Soyuz, so it's a bit of a kind of yeah, you know, with Russian help. Well, that's um, to the Russian planet, so well, exactly, yeah. So they know how. I suppose they know how to launch to Venus by now. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and but you know, Venus Express has been incredibly scientifically important. Confirmed things the, like the presence of lightning, and that that lightning's actually more common on Venus than, than it is on Earth. And I always find that that fact about Earth's being struck by lightning six times a second or something even more ridiculous than that, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredible. So, so, so it, it is ridiculous. And it also reported these huge atmospheric vortexes at the South Pole as well of of Venus. So, uh, well, and, and this this evidence for the past oceans, I think, comes from Venus Express. Sure. So, what? Because of how different the makeup is of the atmosphere and things like that, if there was a potential life story from a billion or so years ago, what life are we talking about in that kind of, I don't know, in that kind of makeup, that kind of planetary makeup? Was it ever similar to Earth or are we talking about literally different elements making up its... Well, it's it's weird because that for a lot of, a lot of Venus's time maybe for billions of years it was an utter sister planet to earth mm. and i think this is the mystery it's like you've got these two planets that are almost identical like identical in size they've got a similar core yeah you know there's not really much of a difference it went with similar distances from the sun 
Yeah. Yet our trajectories have obviously taken insanely different routes. Yeah. And and I guess that that is the core of the mystery is what happened to Venus or what happened to the Earth that allowed you know, the, we might be talking, like we were talking earlier before we came on air, about, like, the Fermi paradox. Well, if you're talking about great filters, maybe Earth avoided a great filter when it comes to the, the type of atmosphere that we have. Yeah. Because it's quite improbable that you can release lots of oxygen into the atmosphere without there ha- having to be some form of life there to do it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, we're looking at the what could have been about four billion years or so on Mars, where they, there's a chance that there could have been a, an Earth-like sort of uh, mm. atmosphere there, which then something happened, something's changed that, and it's, I mean, because Venus has got the type of atmosphere clearly that lets all the radiation in and then doesn't let go of it, and that's no. Basically. Yeah, but that's because yeah, I mean, but 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 if carbon di- if carbon dioxide builds up in the atmosphere, like it would do if you just have mitochondrial life, yeah, animals, yeah, breathing out carbon dioxide, and eventually you just get a runaway greenhouse effect, yeah. Or if you just had plant life breathing out oxygen, then you get a snowball of Earth. But if you have both forms of life starting roughly at the same time. Then you get this balancing effect. It's it's insane. Mm. It seems very unlikely. <laughs> I mean, life seems unlikely as it is, but you it's it's almost like you have to have two unlikely events happening at the same time. I think it was God. Maybe maybe that's one of the great filters. Um, but but of course that's why Venus is really 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 important to understand what on Earth's going on, which makes it the more confusing that the only operational probe out there at the moment is the akatsuki dawn probe japanese japanese yeah japanese of course it is because it's got a nice name yeah although that they they tend to repeat their names which is pretty annoying of the japanese but um akatsuki yeah that is that's the only one out there and and that's that's one of my favorite spacecraft because it actually missed getting into orbit. It was supposed to get into orbit around Venus in 2010 and it failed to do a burn. So it just went flying past. Yeah. And so the, uh, so the guys had to work out how to get it into a different orbit. And it took another five years to get it back to Venus <laughs> to get it in orbit. And you think, God, which obviously must massively reduce its lifetime in in orbit because obviously they must they must have had to have burnt up a load of fuel to do it. Yeah, fair play the fact that they managed to do it. It's like you've gone past. It's like, oh no, <laughs> well we're going to spend five years getting back. It is just like being on the M twenty five when you miss your junction. Yeah, and then you look on the other carriageway and there's a massive traffic jam. Yeah. And you go no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can just like imagine one of, the, thing. one of the engineers sort of going, right, that's me. I'm going home. Uh, the dinner's on, you know what I mean? Hang on a minute, John. Just hang on a minute. Yeah, you're going to be here for the five years. <laughs> At least. <laughs> We've got to work this thing out. Yeah, so. so, But that's the only one out there at the moment. It's the only one out there. And uh, there's the odd thing doing the odd flyby, like I said, Bepi Colombo and, and things like that. But mm. it, that's the only thing that's out there orbiting. So the announcement the other week that, uh, that NASA was sending... Um, 
two new missions. And, and Discovery programs are big. These are big missions. And both of these uh, missions actually didn't get selected the last time because of Lucy and Psyche, which are two of my favourite missions. Obviously, Venus is sort of edging its way back up the agenda a little bit. I mean, there's loads to talk about, isn't there, with Venus? You've got its similarity to Earth and and why it, all that happened. But just the fact that you can, there is this global warming element to it, isn't there, of, yeah. of saying... If you can understand the processes of how you get a runaway greenhouse effect, that seems to me like it could be a useful and a critical thing to understand, right? Completely. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it is literally, we've just, we've got a model for what can go wrong, <laughs> basically. Uh, I was really lucky enough to talk to Da Vinci Plus's lead engineer. And, and so, uh, do you want to hear, do you want to hear the interview? I would absolutely love to. Here it is then, Chris. A kotai. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So I'm joined on the podcast, very excitingly, by Mike Sakarek from NASA. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. Mike, you're you're involved with perhaps one of the most exciting announcements for a long time, and that's the Da Vinci Plus mission that's just been chosen as a Discovery Class mission. First of all, tell us what your involvement is. Uh, before we go on to the actual mission itself. Uh, so I'll be the project system engineer for the mission. As a, and as a project system engineer, I'm essentially the lead engineer uh, overseeing all technical aspects of the mission. So I'll oversee the spacecraft development, the probe system development, uh, the flight dynamics, uh, the ground communications interfacing with the, uh, the launch vehicle, um, all the different technical elements uh, for, for the mission. I'll be the engineering technical authority overseeing our successful reentry into the, uh, the Venus atmosphere. That is a very re- responsible job. We'll, we'll get on to how you got there. <laughs> Have you been involved with the Da Vinci Plus since it became Da Vinci Plus after it, when it was Da Vinci? It lost out, didn't it? Da Vinci lost out to Lucy and Psyche in it, uh, it, in the last round it, of Discovery. It, it did, in fact. It did, in fact. So there's actually quite a bit of history of Venus probe development at uh, NASA Goddard. Uh, for well over 10 years, various different engineers and scientists have been working to try to get uh, another probe mission uh, to Venus uh, led from uh, Goddard Space Flight Center. Uh, the last uh, actual probe mission from the U.S. was the Pioneer Venus Large Probe, and that was at the, the late 70s. Uh, and uh, there's been a huge amount of advancements in scientific understanding and instruments and technology since then. And so we've been we've been doing a lot of development again over the past decade. And yes, back in the 2016 discovery round, uh, there was also four finalists. And unfortunately, both Veritas and Da Vinci uh, lost in that round to, to Lucy and Psyche. Um, I, I did end up joining the Lucy mission after that selection. So I've had the privilege of being uh, on that mission uh, basically since selection. But this time around in uh, the 2019 discovery selection, which was announced last week, it's Venus's time for both Veritas and Da Vinci Plus. I remember covering the story of Lucy and Psyche, and I must admit, I, I absolutely love those missions. I, I I can't wait for for both of them because they're they're extraordinary. But I am also a massive Venus fan, and the fact that we haven't been there for so long. Uh, there was some there were some late 80s Venera missions, which were the uh, the Soviet missions that went down there uh, in in the early 80s. Um, but it, it, it's really been well over 30 years since since anyone's uh, really gone below. In, below the clouds of hmm. Venus. And there's just so much to learn. I mean, there has been other missions in, on the interim uh, with, with Jackson and ESA, but uh, there's 
there is so much that we can understand by going down to the surface. Those clouds are so thick and so hard to penetrate that you really need to go down and take samples of the atmosphere to understand what's going on underneath to correlate with some of those orbital measurements. Now, I, I, there's a little bit of me as when these Venus, when this announcement was made, that it was relating to the um, phosphine announcement. Uh, it, it, what is there some truth to that? Is is the phosphine announcement? Did it make, even though it's sort of turned out to be a little bit dubious, did it make going to Venus much more of a, a priority? Did it did it kind of go, yeah, we should really check out Venus a little bit more, or 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 has it been this a much sort of longer story than that? I'd say it's a much longer story than that. You know ex exactly how headquarters weighed that in the decision. You know, I, I wasn't you know part of those 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 discussions. Um, but certainly Venus has gotten a lot of attention recently. The phosphine in the news uh, last year, uh, and again, there's a lot of scientific debate about that. Um, you know, most certainly helped. I mean, the Venus community has definitely felt a bit neglected uh, with the last New Frontiers round, um, <clears throat> where Dragonfly was selected, as well as the last Discovery round, as, as you alluded to. So there's been a lot of outstanding questions that the Venus community has wanted answered, and the phosphine really definitely kind of helped amp that up, if you will, to really put it kind of in, in the broader public space of there's a question of a possible biological signature, and really the only way we can do that is to go there and take measurements. And fortunately, and, you know, Da Vinci is, is the perfect spacecraft to be able to do that with uh, the instruments that we have, particularly our, our Venus uh, tunable laser spectrometer will be able to help provide some of those measurements that have only been done uh, remotely and hopefully help settle the debate in terms of the scientific importance of that. Um, that is That will be debated for a long time, but to get those definitive measurements that help inform that debate, we'll be able to do that. Yeah, so so tell us a little bit about the overall mission architecture. How, uh, when does it launch? How does the, how does a spacecraft operate? What's, what's, what's the... What's the whole thing? What's the whole deal? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, so right now we are still negotiating with headquarters on exactly when our launch date uh, is going to be. Uh, right now we're targeting somewhere in the late summer to early fall of 2029. Um, and what's really exciting is so we have a spacecraft uh, and we also have uh, the actual probe flight system. So the spacecraft acts as a, as a relay as well as have some instrumentation on board. Uh, then we have what's called a probe flight system. And it basically looks like a big cone. Uh, and that is the, the structure that actually enters the, the Venusian atmosphere. And inside of that is approximately one meter diameter titanium uh, descent sphere, or that's the actual probe itself that goes down. It'll go all the way down to the surface, although we are not required to land, which is you know, is an important distinction um, that'll take measurements all the way down, uh, going down to the surface. So again, we launch in uh, uh, mid to late 2029, and we do our first flyby of Venus in the uh, February to March of 2030 timeframe. And during those flybys, we're not just doing gravity assists there. We, uh, we are doing gravity assist, but we are also taking level one science while we're there with our both visor and cubis instruments. We'll be taking uh, science measurements during flyby one and November of 2030 and flyby two we take in measurements as well. So only half a year or so after launch, we'll be getting uh, some important science measurements. A lot of interplanetary missions take much longer. For example, the Lucy mission that I'm on, we launched here this fall in October of 2021, and we don't start getting our actual first uh, main science measurements until 2027. So we start getting science right off the bat. But the real big show is going to be in June of 2031. And that's when the spacecraft spins up it releases that probe flight system. The spacecraft does continues on flying past Venus, and it points its big two-meter uh, 
diameter uh, high gain antenna down towards the probe as it's entering. And then the probe then enters down through the atmosphere uh, and then starts taking data from about six to seven kilometers up um, all the way down until the surface, constantly beaming it back on an S-band frequency back to the, to the spacecraft. I'm taking measurements with our Venus mass spectrometer, which is a quadrupole mass spectrometer, our VTLS instruments, which is the Venus tunable laser spectrometer. Uh, we have our Vendi, the Venus descent imager, um, which will be taking pictures from about 40-ish or so kilometers down below the cloud deck all the way down to the surface. Uh, and then we also have VASI, which is the Venus atmospheric structure investigation. Um, and that'll be, it's a suite of sensors that will be taking temperature, pressure, and accelerations to make sure we understand the makeup of the Venus atmosphere during the entire descent. And we also have VFOX, the Venus, um, oxygen fugacity sensor, which is a student collaboration that'll be mounted to the outside of our dispenser here to measure oxygen. So we'll be taking actual samples, we'll actually be tasting the atmosphere and taking basically a chemistry lab that's flying all the way down through through the atmosphere and then taking pictures, as, especially as we get down closer. We'll get we'll get around meter resolution uh, as we get towards the end of our descent. Quite a, a suite of uh, instrumentation. Do the instruments on this type of probe, have they been already tested on other spacecraft and, and robots before out in, in space? Or, or, or do you have to start from scratch with a lot of this stuff? No, actually, they have been, uh, a lot of them have been tested before. So our two mass spectrometers, VMS and VTLS, actually flew, uh, very similar versions of them flew on the Curiosity rover. So they're part of the SAM instrument uh, that is taking very similar measurements uh, on Mars. So we've already proven out that those instruments uh, will work uh, in, in a space environment. So there's no new technology there. Now, of course, packaging them in a descent sphere and making sure they can work in the one time that we have to make them work versus the descent sphere um, is going to take you know extra testing and take some a uh, little bit of engineering work but it's not new technology development uh, the camera the Venus descent imager made by mail and space science system they've made a lot of cameras before a lot of the missions that you know that you talk about on the podcast uh, is taken mailing mailing cameras have gone there and in fact Mike Ravine from mail so this Venus is the last one he hasn't imaged yet so he's excited <laughs> to send a, uh, oh, wow. uh, yeah. a, a camera a camera there um, and then the VASI instrument is this, it's a suite of sensors that already been proven and really what it, it, the temperature and pressure measurements aren't that new, but how we build that up into an atmosphere profile um, will be what gives us the new information. It's 2021 and you don't launch till 2029. How, how much does a spacecraft like this actually change in design or, or, is, or is that it? You've got, you've got pretty much got the design. You've just got to, to, to make that as robust as possible. Yeah, we pretty much have the design and we're going to make it robust as possible. You know, with these discovery missions, they're, they're cost cap missions, so we need to be very mindful of scope creep. I mean, would we love to pack even more sensors on there? Of course, any science team would. Um, but to make sure that we, we don't have scope creep, make sure we keep within these cost cap missions, um, we do need to be very mindful of of trying to infuse a whole bunch of new things at the last minute, because while they may be great, you know, that could... That, that could cause for mass and cost growth and schedule issues. So um, the instrument design that we have right now um, is going to be what we fly. Of course, there's some engineering maturation that, of course, will happen between now and 2029. You know, there's some technical questions, of course, that we need to address as we refine the designs through our preliminary design review process, our critical design review process, and of course, fabrication and testing. Um, but what we have right now is what we, you know, what we anticipate flying.
You've, have you ever been in a situation where where there's been a breakthrough in in say instrumentation engine and like an, an engineering or scientific breakthrough that has radically changed a spacecraft design in these sort of long build periods, or does that just yeah. never happen? <laughs> well, it's, I'm sure there's definitely some examples uh, that have happened, um, but unfortunately, it, it, the within the aerospace world, things do move. They move pretty darn slowly. Um, I mean, the processing power you have in your cell phone compared to the processing power of our spacecraft, there, there is there's an inherent lag there. Um, we can't turn things around quite as quickly because the environment is harsh with the, the, the thermal extremes, the radiation. Um, so there's a lot more testing that needs to be done for any spaceflight hardware than versus what you, know, you used to for you know, kind of commercial, you know, commercial consumer hardware. Um, but a lot of these developments do take time. It's unusual for a development to have a radical breakthrough that is immediately ready for uh, flight implementation. Hmm. So my, my doctoral work was advanced spacecraft propulsion. I did plasma physics for, for Hall effect thrusters. And, and they've been in development for quite a while. And new advancements, while we have made some new advancements in that technology, you know, for them to go from a new idea in the lab or proof of concept until something's ready for flight you know, is usually you know, a decade-long process. So a, a, a new radical idea being implemented for flight uh, it takes too long to implement in in this type of cost constrained you know fairly rapid turnaround mission and i'm i'm assuming uh, i don't know why but i'm assuming that this <laughs> you've just brought up uh, ion thrusters i'm i'm assuming that this spacecraft is 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 a chemical an all yeah. chemical <laughs> affair right <laughs> yeah yeah this one is, a, is an all chemical propulsion system no 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 ion thrusters here how long is this descent stage It'll take about an hour to descend through the atmosphere. Um, so our, our nominal mission is right around 60 minutes, plus or minus a, a few minutes or so. And we have to do some very careful modeling. Uh, it's a big Monte Carlo analysis because, of course, the atmosphere changes. There's high winds. I mean, the Venus atmosphere is, is a pretty nasty place. Um, even though it is our sister planet, it's close to us in mass. And, you know, distance from the sun, it's, it's not that far off. But obviously, the conditions of the surface where it's about 900 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, about 480 degrees Celsius, about 95 atmospheres, you know, sulfuric acid droplets in the atmosphere. I mean, it's just, it's not a pleasant place to be. Um, so you have to design something that, that is able to survive in that environment for the period of time that, you know, that you need to be able to get the science measurements back. And so from when we uh, start taking our science measurements all the way through down to the, uh, to the end, which again, it'll be transmitting all the way down to, the touchdown um that we will uh, it's about an hour for that total descent and it's a car carefully choreographed as you can imagine very carefully yeah. choreographed hour of measurements so yeah presumably there's different suites of in instrumentation coming on and off as you go through the different yeah. uh, layers of the atmosphere yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So there'll be there'll be different uh, different. We have breakoff caps um, that expose inlets to because we actually ingest the gas into the probe. And so we have two sets of inlets uh, that break off caps. It'll break off and it'll take a bunch of measurements kind of uh, higher up in the atmosphere. Um, and then they'll be processing those, you know, actually making those measurements while the descent sphere is falling, making those measurements and beaming it back to the spacecraft in real time. Well, we also have the camera taking pictures once it gets below the cloud deck, as well as we have the, the Vazi and VFOX will be taking their measurements throughout the, the entire descent. So, yeah, we have a, a whole sequence of, of things that the, uh, the probe will be doing that we'll be rehearsing, you know, and analyzing you know, thousands and thousands of times. I mean, it's such an important role. I mean, I have one person that will be on my team entirely dedicated to just they have in their mind entirely wrapped around that sequence and making sure that every piece of that puzzle works as we need it to for that sequence. 
Yeah, because I'm just trying to think, you know, as something enters into an atmosphere that perhaps we don't know as much as we should know about, um, uh, with, like you said, strong winds and, 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 and the parachute getting dragged off in different directions. Presumably that's like in, insanely difficult uh, engineering problem. It, it it's a really tricky engineering problem but for those of us who are system engineers though we love it because it, it has everything it, it, you know if, if it's if it's an adventure novel it's an adventure novel that has all possible you know plot twists if you will to make sure that we have to that we have to get all these different facets you know working together working together at the same time uh so we, yeah we'll be analyzing the big distribution with the possible winds are what are the nominal winds we expect what's the worst case wind what could a gust of wind do for us um, what if the clouds are a little lower than expected a little higher than expected in terms of the density gradients uh yeah we have to we're gonna have to design for and account for all of that what well, makes it even more fun uh, you know from a system standpoint is so you, you obviously you you know now talked about uh like the mars rovers and their descents uh to get on the mars but they're just trying to drop off their payloads on the surface of Mars. They're not doing any of their science measurements during that process. They're just trying to get that rover down there, and then the rover will have time to unpack itself and go do its science measurements. No, during that intense process is when we're taking our science measurements. So it's even more critical, you know, that we have you know a thorough understanding of what of what needs to happen uh, during the uh, the descent. So yes, it'll be a really fun you know engineering uh, challenges to work through. But yeah, I have confidence that our team has it well under control. And I'm assuming one of the sort of hardest elements of that is remaining in communication to actually send the data because there's no presumably no point collecting the data if you can't get it back to the space. <laughs> no, yeah, Matt, you're you're absolutely right. Um, because we're taking science data in real time, you know, and there is no collect it all, land on the surface, and beam it back. Yes, we have to beam it all back in 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 real time, and that and that communication challenge is is definitely you know highest on our technical list to make sure you know that we work early and we have a dedicated team devoted to that that very issue right there. So we're implementing what's called an adaptive data rate solution. So we have a two meter high gain antenna on the spacecraft, and then we have uh, the S-band antenna on the descent sphere. Um, yeah, we have to model all of the, 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 the how the atmosphere may perturb the probe and how the pointing of the antenna is the pointing of the spacecraft. Uh, and it'll be constantly talking back and forth and adjusting the data rate because you have the balance you need to strike between if you make the data rate so slow that you you ha are sure to get the data back, well, then you're not maximizing the amount of science you can get. But of course, the scientists want as much data back as possible. So we want to try to increase the data rate as much as possible. But the faster the data rate, you know, the harder the connection is to maintain. So, so we have a strategy right now to try to strike that balance between making sure we have good communication, make sure we stay locked on, but also maximize all those fantastic pictures and data that we plan on sending back. Yeah, so I mean, so, so they're really, is that where the bottleneck actually is in terms of you can collect the data, but you, you can only collect so much data because you know you've, you've got to be able to control this data link. Yep. Yeah, that is definitely the bottleneck. We have, you know, we cameras, they can spit out, you know, data and fill up hard drives, you know, like, like there's no tomorrow. Um, and we can, you know, constantly run and refine those those mass spectrometer measurements to to increase the precision. But there's a balance there between how much, how many ones and zeros you generate and how many of those ones and zeros you can get off the descent probe back to the spacecraft. I mean, we've spent years analyzing it. Um, and we have special teams of experts uh, looking at it and obviously having a previous, you know, 
previous rounds of this proposal, uh, this is the area that we've probably dug into some of the most of any of the technical areas because it is so critical. Um, but uh, yeah, you're definitely right. That, that That is a bit of the bottleneck in terms of getting the data back. So when you were designing the, the, the spacecraft, there must have been other suites of instruments that, that you've had to reject, in other words. Presumably they must have been quite interesting conversations. Yeah, I mean, there is yeah, there's the balance of of what do you fit because we are about one meter diameter titanium sphere, and it's going to be packed with with instrumentation on the inside. Is there more that we would like to to add? You know, of, you know, of course there there would be, um, and even you know people ask you know. Could you turn it into a lander? Turning it into a lander is a whole different suite of engineering challenges, you know, for surviving the landing. But of course, you know, you could take more data if you're down on the surface. So there's, there's again that balance that needs to be struck there of, of getting what are the key science measurements that that the scientists need, and that is these atmospheric chemistry measurements, you know, combined with making sure that we keep the mission, you know, well, well within scope of a discovery mission. So that does you mention landing? What what? What is the landing going to be like for the spacecraft? And is there any chance that it will survive it and be able to do anything once it's on the ground? It is definitely able to to tra- continue transmitting for about 20 minutes or so after landing, assuming that it, it survives the landing. Uh, again, we have no requirement to do so because then there's a whole suite of requirements that goes along with an engineering development that goes along with 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 turning it from a descent probe into an actual lander. Um, but yes, we'll be planning for the contingency that it does survive the landing and continues to acquire and transmit data uh, back to the spacecraft. The spacecraft will be watching it uh, as long as it possibly can to get every last little bit back, you know, should it actually survive the, the landing. So it's, so does it have a, um, a some form of storage so that if, if, it, if it is a little bit slow getting the data up because of because of these transmission problems it's able to get the the data up in the worst case scenario once it's hit the ground well so we have designed it such that it gets all the data back to the spacecraft um, before it hits the ground even in that worst case scenario so that's that's where the adaptive data rate and the onboard data prioritization that we have uh, designed into it comes into play is that it says this is the most important data we'll get it back and just keep basically going down the priority queue basically emptying out because yes we do have storage on board and a queue of data that just keeps it keeps sending keeps sending keeps sending until it until it can't send anymore um, again that part of that part of that uh, trade of balancing the data return um, with with making sure you have that robust link. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like something like the camera system on there is, I mean, obviously it's a science instrument, but it, it, it is, is it a lower priority to get the pictures back than it would be like the gas measurements and the, the spectrometer measurements and things like that? Well, it depends. It depends where we are uh, in the descent, and so that, that's a good question. Is there our data prioritization um, a, is a function of time through the descent. So there are high priority gas measurements, and then there are some secondary gas measurements. There are times when the pictures are priority, and there's times when the gas measurements are priority. And, you know, I mentioned that descent phase lead uh, person again, the uh, person who is solely dedicated to 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 all of you know that thinking and how we do the prioritization um, will help design. Okay, take these measurements. You know, at this time in the sequence okay now take these measurements okay in the queue um, these measurements are first in the queue okay now when we get this picture then it jumps to the top of the queue and 
and, and sends it back up um, in, in that fashion. Um, again, it all has to be autonomous because it's all occurring you know, at, with a time delay that's too great for us to control, obviously, in real time. Yeah, that it's an incredibly. I mean, it just sounds. <laughs> I'm just sitting here going, "Oh my god, that, that's 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 stressing me out thinking." About it. <laughs> but, 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 but but for system engineers, though, I mean, that that's you know that's the kind of problem that we not to take problem, but that's the kind of you know, engineering challenge that we live for because that's because you have to factor in all the things that the you know the the atmosphere is really hot, so it is slowly soaking through the descent sphere. So there's a time challenge there. You have to deal with the dynamics of it going down to the atmosphere and. and communication you you have the power on board for the battery the battery only has a limited life so you know system engineers are always balancing all the different disciplines together and everything is a trade back and forth and, and this really kind of is the the epitome of that system engineering trade space has davinci plus benefited from not being one of those earlier discovery missions did it benefit from that there's certainly a benefit to that in in the extra you know four years or so of development because we definitely after it wasn't selected in 2016 they definitely didn't stop work on it at all um one of one of the things that was identified in 2016 was that radio link you know and, and after that is when we implemented the adaptive data rate solution to really help make it uh, even more robust um if we were selected in 2016, I, you know, I think we would have been just fine. But did we find ways to tweak it and make it a little bit better? Yeah, we most certainly did. Um, so, so yeah, there is a benefit. Any mission um, that isn't selected one time around and then goes through another cycle or two, each cycle, you know, adds does add some value uh, to it going going through. There's an orbiter part of this spacecraft. Does that is that able to stay in orbit, or once this mission's once it's kind of done the transmission, this hour-long descent, is that also uh, a, a, an orbiting piece of space junk around Venus? <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, right now we are there's a little bit of negotiations and headquarters back and forth about exactly what we're going to do after we drop off the uh, the, the descent probe. Um, so we do get two. There are two Venus gravity assists. You know, we do take some science with our visor and our Cubis instruments. Um, and right now we drop off the probe, get the data and bring it back to Earth. And that's the end of the mission. But you know, if we have a functioning spacecraft that has some instruments on board, you know, could there be some options uh, after that? It's something that that we will will definitely be exploring uh, in the future because uh, the spacecraft will have more capability than just dropping off the probe. Is, is often that determined by how expensive it would be to actually kind of keep keep it manned as in keep keep the people in the mission control and 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 and, and the way that against the cost of other things that you could be doing with those resources yeah Definitely, yeah. You know, headquarters definitely is looking at those are what's called phase E of the mission is the mm. implementation phase, and yeah, they're always looking at the the phase E costs. And the more you extend out a mission, uh, the more it gets, the more expensive it gets. So yes, keeping us going for an orbital phase would definitely cost NASA some more money, and um, that they have to weigh against all the other exciting missions that they're working on. You know, going back to my Lucy example, we launched this fall, and our mission goes through 2023. So we have about a 12 year, uh, 2033. We have about a 12-year mission. And so, yes, our phase E cost for that 12 years of Lucy operations is basically comparable to what's taken for us to design, build, and launch the actual spacecraft in the first place. So it has the headquarters is definitely weighing that. Now, what will they do when we, if we have a fully functional Venus spacecraft with sensors on board that's going by the planet? Are they going to say, ah, we don't have the money for that? We'll, we'll see what happens when that time comes. That's a little ways down the road. But of course, you know, I want it to go on as long as possible. I, but you, but there is an, another orbiter. Is is the uh, Veritas? Is that 
is are these two missions actually complementary? They're extremely complementary. Yeah, it's it's really exciting to have them both selected together. Um, in that they're we of course we were competing against each other in this discovery round, just like we were competing against each other in the 2016 discovery round. The science that we're going to be doing is very very different. Um, they are a global mapper. They have a synthetic aperture radar. They have an an, an IR spectrometer. Um, there's a much longer mission. They have a long arrow breaking phase, and their map their global mapping that they're going to do is going to take years uh, to actually get all that data back. Um, so we have our really exciting descent. That's an hour long descent that we're going to get information to rewrite the history books on Venus that will beam back and we'll have it back you know, in a very short order where it's going to take them many years to map the whole surface where they'll be taking these detailed um, radar maps and, and detailed IR spectrometer measurements of the entire surface. So we'll compare what we see in the detail for that local area compared to the global map. Um, and so we really are complementary um, in our science. When when NASA selected both of these for this discovery round, they really kind of put, put all the chips on the table for Venus uh, kind of together with these two different missions. Yeah, absolutely. But they they don't interact. Other than being complementary, they don't interact with one another. As no, no, we don't. We don't interact with one another. Uh, we already have our 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 landing target uh, selected for Da Vinci Plus. It's going to be the Alpha Regio Tessera, and then Venus. They have these really tall, uh, huge platforms, basically uh, that we don't understand exactly how they form, called Tessera. Like these huge plateaus, but these are you know plateaus that are you know the size uh, of of large states, the size of Texas or something like that, size plateau. Um, so Alpha Regio is our target, and we already have that selected, and and planning all of our flight dynamics for that. And well, yes, the uh, um, Veritas is getting a lot more detailed measurements of the surface for them to the time it takes them to go get all those measurements, collect the data and process it, you know, we can't really action uh, off of that information. So we have to go with the Magellan data, provide a lot of the, the radar data that we're using to, to do our targeting right now. So no, we don't have any direct interaction from a spacecraft standpoint. You know, will our science teams and other aspects of the missions, of course, kind of feed off each other to build the excitement for Venus? Yeah, I'm certain we definitely will. Um, obviously, we're in the early stages of all that since less than a week from selection. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, so w- what are the main sort of science goals of of Da Vinci Plus? Are you, is there a, have you been have you got like a set of actual goals? Oh yeah, absolutely. So our our broad science themes are uh, there's the atmospheric origin and evolution. We want to understand you know, what is the origin of the Venus atmosphere and how does it evolve. And we also want to understand why is it different from Earth and Mars. Again, uh, Earth and Venus are very similar in size, but our atmospheres and the habitability for you know for us is obviously quite different. So how did that happen? We understand what the composition and surface interaction is. Um, did Venus have an ocean? And if so, where did it go? And what is the volcanic activity uh, on Venus and how did it potentially you know, shape and form these tessera? Um, the, with the surface properties, what are they made of? Um, how do they get there? And and how does it come and how do they compare uh, across the planet? And the the kind of the big takeaways you know that i've been telling you know family and friends and other people that speak to about this is there's there's kind of two things we want to we are globally thinking about is the analogs to earth of was venus wet and and more habitable and how did it become the kind of hellish world that it is right now and what does that mean for earth um and any climate changes going on towards earth is, is one question the other question is it's kind of like uh the exoplanet next door um we, as we're discovering as kepler and the other missions are discovering thousands of potential exoplanets out there uh, a lot of them fall in the same range that we might expect for venus so uh 
are we going to see help us understand it will help us understand those exoplanet explorations we're doing the other the other instruments uh, especially with James Webb Space Telescope uh, coming online sometime in the near future it'll help us understand the data we're getting from those exoplanets by looking at you know this planet uh, right next door to us at any point in this mission did did, did anyone think about instead of descending all the way down of, of trying to develop spacecraft that say stay in that sweet spot of the atmosphere where <laughs> it's not too rough and you could actually have a kind of orbiting platform that's within the atmosphere so you could you could you can take atmospheric and ground measurements and stay there for a little bit longer yeah, it certainly. Well, the the Russians have actually tried to do that with some balloons that they did on on Venus um, against many many decades ago. Um, had that have studies looked at? Oh, absolutely. Um, having an atmosphere that's it's ninety five times as thick as Earth and close to the surface, um, you know, there it kind of begs the, the the question for well, let's put do some balloons. Uh, you know, an interesting analogy. So we have a parachute that is bringing will bring our uh, the descent probe down to around 40 or so kilometers above the surface, and then it releases the the, the parachute releases, and the, the meteor diameter sphere is then free falling. But the atmosphere is so thick, you shouldn't think of a of a big meter diameter ball falling as you would on Earth. That atmosphere is so thick, it's almost floating, kind of more like a pebble does in in a pond. It's really hard for us to visualize how how thick that atmosphere is. Um, so could you have balloons or something that's riding up in perhaps a little more habitable zone of the atmosphere? Um, again, the Russians have tried that. And we've had many mission concept studies that have done that, uh, have, have looked at that. Um, for the immediate measurements that we need, um, the, the instrument technology has advanced to the point where we can take a lot of these critical measurements, at least on one on one descent. And, you know, if we find some really interesting aspects of it, you know, be able to put some of these instruments, you know, on a different platform sometime in the future to take more global measurements, you know, they're. I'm sure there would be uh, interest and appetite, you know, for for doing that. You know, for this round, for a Discovery class mission, though, um, those kinds of things are difficult to do. Yeah, I mean, because <laughs> we've recently obviously had helicopters on Mars, which mm. which almost seems a bit preposterous, seeing how thin Mars's atmosphere <laughs> is. Like, presumably, a helicopter would work a damn sight better on on Venus. Might <laughs> might might we actually see that type of drone type activity on, uh, like, you know quadcopter helicopters style things on venus is that something that comes out of helicopters on mars well it, it, helicopters on mars but actually the 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 more interesting analogy to think about is the dragonfly mission you know that that's going to titan um talking to some of the colleagues i have that work on 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 that dragonfly mission which obviously isn't launched for quite some time um because the atmosphere on titan is about 10 times as thick um and it's obviously cold the control laws for uh in terms of controlling a helicopter because the atmosphere is so thick it, it it's definitely not liquid but it's definitely much mm. thicker than earth and much much thicker than, than mars um the control laws um, are actually easier um now unfortunately the problem with venus is that yes it's a thicker atmosphere so would a helicopter work great it would, except for the 900 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures. <laughs> <laughs> that poses a whole other whole other set of problems. I mean, we we can't, you know, there's that will take new technology to be able to get uh, electronics and other mechanisms to be able to physically last that long in that in that type of environment. You need you need electronics that can actually um, operate sustained in that environment. So for for the um, for the Venera missions, um, their lifetime was limited by by batteries, but it is, you know, as well as the heat soaking through. What's what makes us, you know, affordable on the Discovery class mission scale is that that 
that descent sphere that we have um, is acting essentially like a thermal buffer. So we have um, what's what we call a transient thermal problem. So that descent sphere is, is slowly heating up as we're going through the atmosphere. Um, and, and eventually, once it you know it reaches um, you know equilibrium with a with a Venus surface, which isn't until long long after the touchdown, um, but then I've, nothing can survive and operate at, at those temperatures. So to have a helicopter that could you know land and recharge like Ingenuity is doing, you'd have to have something that can actually come into thermal equilibrium in that environment and still operate. And that and that we don't quite have the technology for right now. Yeah, the titanium ball as it uh, as uh, when it gets to the surface and it, and it's mm. op- obviously if it can operate for a few hours, mm. and and I, I love that a whole idea of the heat soaking in and that's that's because of course I, I guess there's no way of cooling the thing, <laughs> cooling it no. down. Cause, yeah, because to cool something you have to you have to reject the heat and there <laughs> no place to reject it to. How long will the titanium ball stay a titanium ball on the surface when you've got all this acid and and heat? Well, it's is titanium pretty resistant to that. It is. It is fairly resistant to that. Um, it'll definitely become a soft ball <laughs> of, of metal on the surface. Um, uh, in terms of the long-term studies, what will happen? You know, years down the road, you know, we we haven't looked at that. We really only looked at you know the descent through again about twenty-ish or so mm-hmm. minutes. You know, past um, which which we expected to be able to potentially survive. It survives touchdown. Um, uh, but other than that, yes, it's going to be a. a kind of a the surface of of venus is hot enough to melt lead not quite hot enough to melt you know other metals um but it definitely uh doesn't do nice things to them with the sulfuric acid rain and and other things things of that nature yeah i mean it's it's just not a nice place is it venus <laughs> <laughs> no but it's similar in size to earth and 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 potentially had oceans and and stuff you know similar to earth and you know what happened? What the heck happened? Yeah, that's what we want to try to figure out. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, we've we've certainly had this on the podcast before, where it, it's always a little bit surprising how little Venus gets talked about, considering how much Mars gets talked about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the yeah, Mars is one one hundredth the atmosphere. You know, it's got uh, about the third third of the gravity, and I mean, Venus really is our twin. Um, an evil twin, uh, but it's just, you know, certainly our twin. And we're looking for, you know, analogies in the solar system. I mean, obviously it's not hospitable, hospitable now, but um, you know, it's really the closest, uh, closest to earth. And, and boy, do we go down different paths and understanding that, you know, is, is under, is helpful for us to understand the evolution of habitable worlds, you know, throughout the solar throughout, you know, throughout the galaxy. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it, <laughs> I mean, it does stand as a pretty, convincing um argument doesn't it that you can that that if if your if your atmosphere and your and your weather get out of control it can be pretty serious right (laughs) (laughs) yes yes definitely can definitely can get serious um now that's not to say that we're exactly on the path of, of 95 atmospheres and 900 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> temperatures <laughs> here on Earth, but but the more carbon dioxide we pump into the atmosphere, um, you know the you know, the more raising we are creating a greenhouse effect, and and the Venus Venus atmosphere is the greenhouse effect that is completely run away, the greenhouse effect on steroids, and we obviously don't want earth to even come close to going down that path because that would uh, that would not make for for a good day um no so that, that that's why it's it is important because i mean earth oxygen you know came from biological sources billions of years ago um and so 
uh, you know, obviously we we diverged in in how we got the atmosphere and the climate that we did today, and it is changing. And and where do you extrapolate that trend out to? Well, that, that's one one way to perhaps help us understand that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a I mean, like you said, it's an extreme extrapolation, but it, it still acts as a as a control. You know, we've only got one other measurement, and that's yeah. Venus. I <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Obviously, you know, Europa and Enceladus, you know, they get a lot of play time as well, um, being being ice worlds, and those are re- really exciting for the possibility scientific possibilities there. But those come from very different processes. You know, the, the gravitational pull of those large planets creating those energy sources. You know, that that are heating up and creating those liquid oceans here but the processes on earth and venus you know should have a lot more uh, a lot more analogs to each other you know and that's what we want to understand yeah well i mean yeah i'm, I'm really really chuffed that that venus is is getting a bit of love it definitely it definitely needs it <laughs> so, uh, maybe 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 the europeans can we can we can send something good there too but when uh, da vinci lost out uh, lucy was one of the ones that got picked and you're part of that that mission so has your involvement with lucy and your and your and your technical know-how on that and and obviously management etc etc has that put you in the position to be uh where you are for the for the uh, da vinci mission yeah, uh, yeah, most certainly. I, I've had a lot of technical leadership positions throughout throughout my uh, entire career, uh, both at Sandia National Labs, JPL, worked at Air Force Research Laboratory. So I've I've been around a lot of different institutions and done a lot of a lot of varied things uh, throughout my career. Uh, but working as uh, one of the lead engineers on a planetary mission uh, such as Lucy really helped me understand how to how to form the right team to get the right people um, working on the problems. You know, I've mentioned several times about. Some of the specific, you know, uh, you know, engineering uh, challenges that we're going to have throughout the Da Vinci Plus mission, identifying the right people to to, to put them in charge of those of those various areas uh, is something that I definitely learned in the team building uh, that that I helped with Lucy since I was part of the Lucy since right after selection all the way through to our launch here uh, this October October of 2021. Um, and there's there's the different uh, aspects of planetary missions where you have planetary launch windows um, that are are very constraining. Unlike a lot of the Earth missions or science missions, where um, your your launch opportunities are fairly continuous um, and really more limited by launch site availability and budgets of continuing going. Whereas the planetary world, you have to hit your launch window, um, and there's much there's much stronger drivers. Uh, the missions are typically are typically longer. Again, DaVinci Plus is actually very short for a, a planetary mission, um, but you have a lot of the same drivers uh, that you need in, in in building your team and how you manage the team and how you solve how you solve technical challenges. Yeah, and and I noticed that your background itself is really really interesting. Can you tell us, mm-hmm. you know, how when you first got interested in space and and your entire journey because it is it is a really fascinating one. Uh, I, I've been a, a, a space and sci-fi enthusiast my entire life, um, and so uh, that's that's I can't even pinpoint a, a start date for that. Uh, yeah, loved uh, Star Trek: Next Generation uh, growing up, uh, and of course all the Star Wars. And I have always been an avid sci-fi reader, even the classic, you know, Clark and Asimov um, books. Um, so I've always been a, a sci-fi enthusiast. Um, it wasn't really until I went into into grad school actually 
actually went to grad school, started grad school at Caltech and JPL doing research on propulsion that I realized, hey, not only could I read about it, but I actually could become part of it and, and do it, um, which was so really exciting. I had so many great mentors there at Caltech and JPLs as, as a starting point. Um, Unfortunately, my career was interrupted a little bit because I was uh, in the army, and so I actually got activated after September 11th and actually did a combat tour in Iraq as an armored cavalry officer uh, leading urban combat ops in southwest Baghdad for a while, uh, but I always knew I wanted to return to engineering, and so um, after uh, uh, several different fun things that I did in the military uh, did end up returning uh, to, to my engineering background and and did space and missile system work. Uh, did my doctorate at University of Michigan on advanced spacecraft propulsion, researching you know different these different systems that can really enable whole new realms of exploration. And we're starting to see it with the Psyche mission is going to be able to do here when it launches shortly. Of course, with the Dawn mission did with its ion thrusters, um, and then eventually made my way um, to, uh, to to NASA Goddard um, and have and have uh, tried to work the planetary missions since I got there and had an opportunity for Lucy and took it and and was really eager about uh, taking the leadership role for uh, Da Vinci and uh, excited to see this one through. Did you find that that your spell in the army has given you this um, uh, like a, an extra perspective on on management style? Is that something that you're able to bring to the to the table as well as your engineering skills? Yeah, no, absolutely. My my military experience and my officer training. Um, has helped me tremendously from uh, the management side of technical leadership because it's not just about um, how, how smart you are or how you know how well you know the equations or how well you understand the hardware. You have to manage the people, and people management is the same in in any facet. Whether you're in the military, whether you're in the financial world, whether you're in the engineering world, um, you have to know how to to lead people, to motivate, them, to find what gets them excited, make sure you get them in those roles to get them solving the problems. Because you know the Da Vinci Plus mission has a great team. It's not. It's not me designing it. It's the team that's designing it and making sure that, you know, that team is led through all the different challenges as problems arise. You make sure you have give your folks the resources they need uh, to be able to solve the problem. Sometimes you need to act as a little bit of a buffer to give them the space they need to solve the problems, to bring back the solutions to, to, to the to the management chain for uh, for approval. So, you know, absolutely having both you know done academic research done a lot of other projects in different institutions and well as having military leadership it's definitely helped me prepare for uh the multi-partnership role that we're going to have here in individual plus yeah i mean do, I, I, and just working for nasa i mean because everyone i talk to who works at nasa seems to have this like really quite extraordinary kind of personal growth as they work their way through the the institutions uh, is am I getting that right? I mean, is NASA this really amazing place to work? It it, it definitely attracts some really top talent. Um, it is. I mean, everyone always has that kind of cool factor, that wow factor for different things that they do, and and you know, sometimes you get it early in life, and then you kind of settle into a career, and 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 this type of a career working on um on these spacecraft and these missions where it's it's. It's exciting, no matter how far you get into it. Talking about going into the atmosphere of the planet is is exciting, no matter no matter how old you are, no matter how far you are in your career. For the the Lucy mission, um, you know, I've been out, spent a lot of time with this, a lot of good quality time with my spacecraft out there. Um, it's so beautiful to see that hardware, the big vacuum chambers, the big cranes, the big facilities that we have, the big shaker tables to be able to run these tests. Uh, for for Lucy, we're going to be the furthest solar powered mission ever in history. We've got these 7.3 meter diameter uh, flexible uh, ultra flex arrays that are going to be go even past the orbit of Jupiter operating on solar power. And when I saw those things deployed for the first time, 
you know, there's there's a cool factor that that you just you can't describe in words. Just seeing that hardware, I, I call it firsthand photons. When you're seeing something, you know, for yourself, uh, you know, with your own eyes, you know, that is exciting, and that's what motivates people. You know, and that's what can you know draw the great talent that NASA and all of its partners um, uh, do. Yeah, oh, I love that phrase, firsthand photons. You know, that that absolutely sums up my experience of getting back into space after I bought myself a telescope and saw Jupiter with first-hand photons <laughs> for a telescope and you go, oh my God, it's actually Jupiter. And it's there's, yeah. it's a different experience, isn't it, to just looking at it on a, on a photo? It, 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 it totally is. It totally is. I mean, you can see like uh, I would, for my my similar experience is actually Saturn, seeing the rings of Saturn. You know, um, yeah, I've seen so many of the Cassini pictures and they're absolutely gorgeous. But when I first saw the rings of Saturn through a telescope, and I knew that that light had gone away from the sun, had bounced off those rings, you know, bounced off a few mirrors and directly into my eyes, you know, you know knowing that a journey that it took to to these you know, amazing places. So it just leaves it's a psychological impact, um, you know, that really helps motivate it. And and getting the people to do this amazing thing, you know, takes that kind of that human factor to, to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing that uh, that also strikes me is that. Like you, you know, you did your PhD in ion ion thrusters. Yeah, as you as you get sort of further up the ladder in uh, in terms of like uh, being the the lead engineer, etc. Do you get further away from the actual engineering, and it becomes more of a case of management? I mean, obviously, you still need to have the engineering knowledge to be able to manage these engineers, but <laughs> but do you get but do you get slightly more? You know, because it, it, it always seems a pity to me that, that you've got a, that someone with a PhD in ion thrusters isn't actually engineering ion thrusters at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it, there, there, there is. I cannot deny there is an element of that is is I am not running the calculations, uh, you know, myself. Uh, you know, all I told you about all these, you know, these analyses we've doing for the sensphere going through the atmosphere, you know, my team's doing that. I'm not running that. All these flight dynamic trajectories that we have, an amazing flight dynamic scene that, that's running all of these, they're doing those calculations and not myself. These thermal analyses, you know, there's another team of people doing that. So there is um, a, a little bit of, uh, of, See, uh, there's a little bit of sadness inside the the nerd inside of me is a little sad that I'm not the one actually running those numbers anymore. Um, but when you but you when you when you see you know the results that your team are coming up with, you know it does the leader inside of you gets gets motivated, um, you know by what they do. And the thing that I love about the the project system engineer role that I loved about Lucy and that you know that I'm finding the same thing to be true with Da Vinci is that I had to deal with so many different technical challenges that a lot of them are outside my expertise. And you have to apply that same engineering methodology, same engineering thinking to be able to solve all of those, to gather the data, to synthesize a response, to understand the situation and to help develop the path forward. You know, as a lead system engineer, you don't have to know the answers. You just have to know how to get to the answers. And that's using uh, your team's abilities to be able to get to, to the answer. So you have, to, you have to understand it enough to be able to get to a good technical solution, even if you're not, you know, turning the crank yourself. Yeah. 
It's very fascinating. It's a, it's, it's that's super fascinating. Well, well, well. Thanks very much for talking about these missions. I've got a couple of frivolous questions that I always ask my guests, but you haven't been prepared, so I, I'm that <laughs> you, 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 uh, you, you may not know them. But I always, uh, well, normally ask two questions, and one of them: Have you got a hero from the past, a person that no longer lives anymore, a, a dead person from the past that you would bring back and say? Hey, look at what we're doing! Isn't isn't this incredible? Who who would you bring back from from the past to to have a to show your work? Uh, honestly, yeah, probably uh, Carl Sagan. Um, would love to have him see what's going on right now, both in terms of the science that we're doing and the outreach portion of it, the public enthusiasm for that. Um, uh, it would be one, and I'm going to give, so I wasn't prepared, I was going to give you two answers as well, of course, you know, Warner Von Braun uh, with the, um, the, what was done for the Apollo program is, you know, is truly amazing. And if I could go back in time, be part of anything, I would love to be, you know, one of the lead engineers on Apollo, because it's such an exciting uh, uh, era of, of aerospace history. And it's what we're able to do now um, is, you know, would be you know, amazing to show them. So those are my two answers. Yeah, well, that that is quite diverse as well. Von Braun and, and Sagan. I mean, I, you certainly can't. I, I certainly can't argue with those two choices. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if you do manage to get Sagan back, get him to come on the show. Get him to come on the podcast because <laughs> <laughs> that'd be absolutely well. And Von Braun's coming to Sagan. That's that said. Um, and and the other frivolous one is: Do you uh, do you have any piece of music that you that you associate with space or that you associate with anything really that that can go on our space song playlist that we keep oh um i almost gave you lucy in the sky of diamonds then but because <laughs> <laughs> i could see i could see the lucy picture so, in the background with a diamond next to it but. yeah so yeah yeah so lucy is is named for the astrolopithecus uh, fossil which was named after the song um and we actually do have a plaque that we put on the lucy spacecraft that has uh, the, the drawing that uh, john lennon's son uh, son made so um yeah i'll definitely in honor of hal levison our pi for lucy i'll definitely say lucy in the ah sky there speech. we go I I accidentally put, put it. It's going on actually because it isn't on, but that's a. It is actually a good shout. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I just couldn't resist because I could just see. I could just see the the poster right next to your head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, we 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 do have a we do have a shout out to, to you know to that as as part of the mission. And our, and our PI is a, is a huge classic rock fan. Nice. So we actually yes. often talk at our talk at our meetings. Wow. Well, that's really cool. Well, thanks very much. That that is absolutely awesome. I, I um I'm really looking forward to this mission. It's it. What's 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 so annoying, isn't it? That well, I guess I guess you're not annoyed, but the for us uh, for us space geeks is is how long these things take. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you know. So we did. Uh, all of the discovery missions had proposed a 2026 launch date, and and unfortunately, due to the the budgetary pressures of the NASA, they've asked us to push it out by a couple of years. So, I admit it, we are a bit frustrated by that as well. We're excited that we're picked. Um, we're excited that you know us and Veritas will be going going together. Um, but uh, would we like to launch in 2026 instead of 2029? Absolutely, we would. Um, but you know, we're picked, so we can't complain. Is so twenty six and twenty nine are they are they launch windows for Venus? Then? Yes. So there's one in May of twenty six. Uh, there's one in January of twenty eight, and then there's both one in in August and November of twenty nine. Our launch or the uh, again 
some of the constraints we have. So we have to combine when, you know, you literally, you see the saying, oh, when the planets align, well, for us, we truly need the planets to align and they have to align with the, you know, the budgetary realities of NASA. <laughs> I'm not going to say which one's harder. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's a, that's a great place to stop. Thanks for, thanks very much for uh, spending the time with us, Mike. No, happy, happy to do it. Uh, and happy to keep you guys up to date with as we, as we progress through development. So it should be exciting. Yeah, and I've got to I've got to thank Tupper for for organising this. So thanks, Tupper. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. There you go. Fab. And and I, I might have some European Space Agency news on the same subject over the next couple of weeks as well. Ooh. So. We, we can look out for that one as well, Venus-related. I'll keep an ear out for that. Uh, I want to do a shout-out to patrons. Can you help me? Can I can you help certainly me help you, of course. Let's do it. These are absolute legends. They're all in the, They're all chattering away as we speak in the Discord. And, uh, and often, some of them come on, they do uh, episodes with me or give me guests. Oh, it's just genius. So here they are. Bob Hodges. John Bernack. Nicholas Gillenstein. Kenton. Hawkinson, Ronald Hatcher, Marissa Davis, Tupper Hyde, Malta Keisling, Rob Annable, Mark Schum, Neil Hansen, Christopher Andreasen, Stas Schuscher, Jean Wachinick, Alden Vala, Bob Moore, Jordan L. Curdy, Jenna Tiwana, Al Broom, Steve Croucher, Mark Kelly. I, a little bit of me hopes that that's the actual Mark Kelly. Jim King. <sighs> That Jim King, by the way, is the nicest human being on earth. I just want to point that out. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the Swiss Army knife of glory. Paul Hilton. Adam French. What a gang. Uh, that's that's massively grown as well. I just As I was reading that out, I was thinking, crikey, it's becoming quite an army. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think there's there's enough of us now to start our own space agency. Without a doubt. And as soon as my Bitcoin goes back up, I'm paying for it. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> bombed out there yeah it's like elon could you tell me when you're going to do stuff like that please <laughs> i mean seriously he must be able to make his friends really rich right because he just goes right tomorrow i'm going to tweet about bitcoin being dropped and how ace dogecoin is mm. just quickly swap them over yeah yeah i mean literally i wonder if he's got a bunch of mates who are all laughing down the back you know all laughing their way to some very expensive holiday billionaires are involved oh. in an infinite jest with us without a doubt they oh. are laughing they're laughing at you oh. they're laughing at me talking about billionaires there's quite a lot of humor going on about which of them is going to go to space first mm. because it looked like it was jeff bezos didn't it because jeff bezos is going to be on the next um, New Shepherd, yeah, which might be soon, might be very soon. So we might see Jeff Bezos go into space, which which is a pretty great story. But someone's saying that e that Elon Musk may have bought that extra seat, and because Elon Musk is slightly taller than Jeff Bezos, he will go into space just a tiny bit before him. <laughs> but I love it. But we might have a Brit beat them all, and old. Old Dickie. Dickie Branson, old Dickie B, might actually go up on on a on a Virgin Galactic and oh, just go pip on to it. You know, we need Come to win on. at something in this game. We do need to win at something. Come on! So I'm rooting for Dickie B. Who are you rooting for? Dickie B all day. Dickie all B all day. B. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I'm and then and after that, I think I'd like to see Bezos go. I think I'd like to see him just just to just to see him beat Elon Musk. Oh, he's 
Yeah, well, he's got to have a win somewhere, hasn't he, old Bezos? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> I really feel sorry for him. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it must be awful for him. What are you doing this week, Chris? I'm starting a new job, Matthew. I'm, going to be, I'm starting to work for the Liverpool Arab Arts Fest. I'm going to be their education producer. So I am excited, anxious, and uh, yeah, looking forward to getting back up to full speed. It's been a long time. I spent a, 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 over a year just working on quite a low low burner. So I'm going to be very busy, but you know, it's time to time to time to step oh. up again. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. You've got a a good old job. How about you? I shall be plodding plodding along with the same old old job. (laughs) Having to go in now, though, which is a little bit uh, distressing. Don't do it. Work from home forever. Commuting. (laughs) Ah! Uh, No to (laughs) pants. No to trousers. No to trousers. (laughs) Uh, So that's it. Bye, Bye, Spock Cuts. Bye, Spock Cuts. Bye, Spock Cuts. Bye, Spock Cuts. Bye, Spock Cuts.